There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. This is a podcast where we review a different movie franchise, one movie at a time. We are wrapping up the loosely connected animated J.R.R. Tolkien trilogy with the Rankin-Bass adaptation of Return of the King. That's from 1980. I'm your host, Uncle Milkshake, and with me is special guest uh, Cliff Broadway. Hello there, everyone. And Thrasher. Ayau Ethami Garazea, which is Elvin for the pen of your aunt is in the garden. And uh, who is our third guest today? Uh, it's Jersey Jason of the Nine Fingers. And the So before we get started uh, talking about this movie, I just want to point out the website for this podcast is at SequelCast.com, and you can send me an email at SequelCast at gmail.com or follow the Twitter feed at Twitter.com slash SequelCast. Now, uh, before we get started, let's talk about our guest, Cliff Broadway. He has a few Lord of the Rings connections. I actually saw him talk a few years ago at Dragon Con. He was promoting a book that he uh, wrote or contributed to from uh, TheOneRing.net. We had a lot of articles and a lot of features that were written for TheOneRing.net, and one of the publishers decided to approach us in building a collection of those articles. We actually put out two volumes of those books. The great joy of electronic media and new media is, you know, having that stuff available on the go wherever you go some of the old school fans are very interested in paper and printed things so that that's why we put some of our articles together in a little omnibus the work that I have done for the wondering.net has gone over 10 years and I was lucky enough to go down to New Zealand and sneak around on the sets while Peter Jackson was finishing the principal photography on the trilogy oh. for a brief period of time I was lucky enough to work for a Sir Ian McKellen on his official website mckellen.com yeah it's a, a really great little synergy of elements there. Lots of funny stories tell connected to the Lord of the Rings fan documentary that uh, I wrote and produced. We were uh, calling that Ringers, Lord of the Fans. We were trying to explore a little bit of pop culture history and uh, rock and roll while we were exploring Tolkien at the same time. And he also did the voice of Samwise Gamgee in the Fellowship of the Rain video game? That is true. There was a, there were two different video game elements happening at the same time. One of them was related to the movie license, and that was, of course, EA Games. The other one one was a book like and that video game development was under Universal Games. Uh, they had the name Black Label Games at the time. They were trying to create another world of Tolkien gaming that was derivative straight from the tech and not having anything to do with New Line Cinema or their images or Peter Jackson's work. So I, I was able to do work on the, the book-centric side of the video game. I met the guy who does the voice of Professor Utonium on the Powerpuff Girls. Oh, he's, fantastic. He's a great voice actor. His name is Tom Kane. He's a legend in the world of voiceover and animation, and he got to do Gandalf, and it was just a treat to meet him and work with him. He's also the voice for Square, uh, SpongeBob SquarePants, and he is kind of a god. Jason, that's Tom Kane. Oh, yeah. Yeah, didn't he say Tom Kenny? No, he said Tom no, Kane. No, Tom Kane. Tom yeah. Kane. I'm, I apologize. Cut that part. Uh, Tom Kane is like this. Tom Kenny's like this. You mentioned you did produce this uh, documentary, Rainers, which you can actually see on Netflix Watch instantly, or you can rent or buy from your local store. Oh, yes. Actually, the, the best experience we had was interviewing uh, Getty Lee and going to see Rush live in concert. Our, our relationship with uh, many old-school rockers and prog rockers from the 60s and 70s, that, that's what it was all about for me. And uh, I, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Getty Lee at, at a time when, you know, Aqua Teen Hunger Force was just making cheap jokes about him, you know, and uh, it was just so cool to sit there and listen to him, you know, talk about, I was doing a lot of, you know, things when I was 19 years old and smoking a lot of things, and we decided to write some crazy song about Rivendell, and, and it goes on and on for about six minutes, but we kind of like it, and even though it's naive, 
we're really fond of it. And he was looking back so fondly on that, that critical time when Tolkien enters the life of a person, usually when they're a teenager, and really dramatically impacts them creatively. And it was just very cool to hear him tell his stories personally. And believe it or not, he let us have the use of Rivendell for only one dollar. We didn't have to pay anything at all for licensing that song. He let us have it for a dollar. Yeah, those guys were really supportive of the fans. They were very supportive of the OneRing.net. Um, I can't tell you the same funny stories about Led Zeppelin. It didn't quite work out as well as we wanted, though, there. We're going to get to Return of the King Rankin-Bass pretty soon. Before that, you were mentioning yeah. people usually run across Tolkien and get into it when they're a teenager. Were you a teenager when you first read J.R.R. Tolkien, or I guess more specifically Hobbit Lord of the Rings for the first time. I was. I was just at that cusp in between 12 and 13. There's something about, you know, the fertile mind of a young person and, and how sponge-like, you know, these young people can pick up all kinds of things at that age and be powerfully influenced. It happens in a good way, uh, and it also happens in this world in an unfortunate way, where the, the most young, malleable mind can be really profoundly influenced by what books are put right in front of them, or, or you know, what teaching. The introduction of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings into my life was a profound change. I, I was opened up to all kinds of Eurocentric literature and, and high romantic literature. It all hit me all at once. Very powerful. It was a great time. The advent of the, the cartoons, of the Rankin-Bass cartoons, were really the key that got me into reading the books in the first place. I would like some brief thoughts from you about the Rankin-Bass Hobbit and the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. There's a love-hate relationship that has always been going on in the Tolkien fan community about these animated adaptations. And some people are very, very fond of it, and they love it. They'll, they'll walk into a room singing, Where There's a Way, There's a Way. You guys right here, you know the lyrics. Everybody knows that song. We don't want to go to war today, but the master of the, the Lord of the Light says, Nay, nay, nay. You know what? If there's a if there's a distinction between Tolkien fans, it's probably the purists who are older and they're they're not interested in Peter Jackson's stuff and they're really not interested in animation. They're interested in just the, the literature itself. The mm. the other fans are much more open and flexible with their acceptance of oh, look, here's a progressive rock album. It's all based on Lord of the Rings elements. Let's get into it. Let's explore this. And But the purists, they're like Shakespearean purists. They never, ever want you to play fast and loose with the rules of Tolkien or the rules of Shakespeare. And those are the first people who are going to grouse if you you know, change your Shakespeare around to make it more modern or, or approachable. But I'm not a purist, really. I've studied Tolkien all of my life, and I know enough about it <laughs> more than I should know. I could walk into the room with somebody else's adaptation of Tolkien. I'm more than willing to embrace it. That puts me in the younger, second, and third generation camp. Those are the people who are more willing to forgive Peter Jackson and Philippa and Fran for the changes they made to the script. I mean, I think the biggest fault I find in the Ralph Bakshi uh, animated Lord of the Rings is that it's almost too faithful to the Tolkien text. That It just gives it such a slow pace. Not that the Tolkien dialogue is bad, I'm not saying that, but when you do an adaptation, it gives you license to change things or make things visually interesting, and the uh, Bakshi work has a lot of static camera, and part of that might have been technology at the time. Have you met people, actually, on the end who have never read the book but have fallen in love with the cartoons, just as cartoons. Yeah, there are, there are people who really, really love the Rankin and Bass versions so much because of the strong childhood memories and the songs that they learned when they were very young from that show. Ralph Bakshi, I will give him credit for making a really good attempt, but he cluttered the narrative so much it was no longer cinematic, at like like you just said. It, it seemed to, to you know hone so much closer to the book than it needed to. Well, he ended up only making one half of the story and never got the funding and never finished making the rest of it. And he never even got the studio, United Artists. They never even put a, a tag at the end that would say end of part one, so the audiences would even know that was you know what was going on. I'll, I'll give Ralph Bakshi all the credit in the world for giving it the good old college try, trying some really cool technique and animation, which was always interesting to watch. But the, the narrative, uh, his, his, uh, his story structure was not cinematic, and it didn't really help anything. 
the Rankin-Bass things, I think they were more successful to a degree because they reshaped and reformed Tolkien to fit a television product that was really different. What I, what I learned in conversations with the Rankin and Bass historian, he's an animation historian named Rick Goldschmidt. He's been working very closely with Messrs. Rankin and Bass over the years to create the archives of all their, their work. He published a book called The Enchanted World of Rankin Bass. And uh, when I was looking through it, I discovered that Rankin and Bass only licensed the rights to The Hobbit and The Return of the King, and they never got any licensed rights to any other Tolkien materials. Their original project was supposed to be one film for The Hobbit and one film for The Return of the King, and that was it. So they never even got a license to try to make a Fellowship or a Two Towers adaptation. That's why they never attempted one. Why would you do the front end and the back end? It is strange. I, I guess I guess the reason why is because The Return of the King is the piece of the story that gives closure and wraps up all the story elements. When we get to talking about it, there are parts of The Return of the King that you don't know where the heck the characters are coming from because they're in the original parts that weren't covered. Exactly. The, the, the Return of the King thing that they did was just a total flashback, a flashback of, oh, we're sitting here comfortably with Elrond and Rivendell, and, and let's take a look back and see how Frodo lost his finger. You know? You guys know how, how weird it seems. And it seems like Bilbo just slept through the entirety of the action <laughs> woke up and, oh, how'd everything happen? The ring wasn't evil, was it? Yes, we better tell the story again. Minstrel, start the song over. Well, I mean, when I saw this, yeah. I, was, I was quite confused because they talk about Bilbo's, like, 125th birthday or something, and I'm like, wait, didn't he... 129. Yeah, and didn't he have his 111st birthday, as that's what always sticks in my mind from Fellowship. I don't know if you really need the wraparound story, yet they have the next-to-impossible task of summarizing, oh, I don't know, 600 pages worth of material from Fellowship and Two Towers in about two minutes. And a bit of The Hobbit as well. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of the strangest things ever to look at, you know, The Return of the King without Legolas or Gimli ever showing up at all. After watching the uh, Bakshi one, watching the Rankin-Bass one again, it just strikes me how much better the voice acting is in these Rankin-Bass adaptations. And I really enjoyed Gandalf's uh, narration throughout. You know what? I'll actually say, watching the the, uh, Return of the King reminded me how much I liked the first one and how much I disliked Bakshi's. I didn't really like a lot of the songs in the first Hobbit, but frankly, watching the Bakshi one made me miss the songs, and then I come back to this one, and they're there, and it made me feel nice and warm. I love, I love Ralph Bakshi's attempt at fidelity, his, his attempt to keep so much fidelity to Tolkien's original story is admirable, especially in, in the scene where Frodo is struggling for his life against the, the Witch King and gets stabbed in the shoulder at Weathertop, and, and uh, Peter Jackson doesn't come anywhere close to what happens in the book because he brings in Liv Tyler to come in and save the day at that moment. And, you know, well, you know, God bless him. I, I, I love Liv Tyler and exactly. putting her in beautiful, soft focus, you can never go wrong with that, but really, that's not Tolkien. I always wonder, the director that originally had the rights to do a Lord of the Rings movie was John Borman, who later did the film Excalibur, and Deliverance for that matter. And I wonder what his take would have been. I, I read John Borman's autobiography, and he said he wanted to do Lord of the Rings with an entire cast of uh, little people. And really? Yes. Well, I guess you would have like, had to live at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how that would have worked out. It would have most certainly had Billy Barty in the cast, I assume. I don't know. It would have been a very interesting... It, it, would, have had, it would have had the cast of Time Bandits. <laughs> yeah. At that, yeah, at that period of time, that's, that, those were the top names. This is before Willow. The, the biggest names in Little People. Um, yeah, John Borman made Excalibur directly as a response to losing the opportunity. Uh, United Artists gave the opportunity to Ralph Bakshi, and Ralph Bakshi went right ahead and did it the way he wanted to do it. And John Borman said, well, I've, I've done all this research, and I'm up to my eyeballs in, you know, this mythology. I might as well switch right over to the Arthurian cycle and finish what I started. And I, I, I see John Borman's work in Excalibur as being, well, this is it. This is what my Tolkien adaptation would have been. And it's amazing. I think Excalibur 
is one of the greatest uh, films of, of the 80s, and it's uh, really like the, the springboard for Liam Neeson and Patrick Stewart, and it's really fantastic. I love that stuff. The, getting back to The Return of the King and, and the adaptation of, of where they went with it, the, the Hobbit has been so successful for Rankin and Bass. They got uh, the Christopher Award. They got the Peabody Award for The Hobbit. It, it blew everyone away. And, and they were just sitting around going, well, we have to take this next one to the same place with music, with uh, you know our minstrel, which is the voice of Glenn Yarborough. We want to use all these elements that made that TV product so successful for The Hobbit, we're going to reuse those elements and try to put The Return of the King together. But when they got really close into the material and realized how dark, really deadly dark and depressing and weird it, it is in The Return of the King, it's like, well, you tend to mix a little of oil and water that really aren't meant to mix together. You've got melodic little melody sing-song things, going along with, you know, poor Frodo and Sam scrabbling on their faces in the middle of Mordor, barely able to survive. And, and how are we going to stick in musical numbers in the middle of all this tragedy? There's, you know, people dying on the Pelennor fields. What's, what are we going to do here? And, and they, they put it together as best as they could, but um, I, I really, I'm still fond of it. I think it's really kind of fun. Still, even though it has the music numbers, it does maintain a fairly depressing tone throughout and every time they go into a sauna dance number it's like they fantasize about how nice things will be in Hobbiton with their Hobbit babies and Hobbit wives yes. and, then they're, and then they're slammed wow. back into this depressive gray dark landscape in Mordor well, you know, that's thing about that's something that really bothered me about the film whenever they would go into one of those fantasies about, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be back in the Shire, or, oh, what would happen if I used the ring for good, or any of things, all of those sequences and all those musical numbers, they really felt like padding, which mm. which really upset me, because w when you're working with Tolkien, you're working with source material that's so dense, the very fact that you can fit padding into an adaptation tells me you're doing something wrong. Well, again, look at all the stuff they did leave out. Well, that's my question. Why not cut out the, the fantasies and cut out the flashbacks and cut out the musical numbers and put in more of the, the novel's content? I mean, even if it is dark, it's not as if it could not be adapted. Even when I watch something like uh, David Lynch's adaptation of Dune, I, I know it's a train wreck. I know the whole thing is a real <laughs> mess. But, I mean, I love it. I love it passionately, and I'll still defend it because I agree. I'm a fan. What do you want? Yeah. You know? I mean, I have my own guilty pleasures, and that that sometimes includes Rankin-Bass' version of Return of the King, okay? So... <laughs> yeah, the Rankin-Bass Return of the King is like the showgirls of any Lord of the Rings adaptation. You watch what? it. it is. <laughs> I wouldn't compare it to that piece of trash. Um, state, state your case, Matt. <laughs> showgirls is, is, a, is a Paul Verhoeven film. And I enjoy a lot of Paul Verhoeven's work, and his early European stuff is quite different than um, what he's done in the States. Showgirls is, is awful. There's no reason, reason it should exist. It was a high-profile NC-17 movie that fell on its ass, literally. It's only notable for a scene where Elizabeth Brinkley is having sex with uh, the guy from Twin Peaks, Kyle MacLachlan, and she flops around like a dead fish. And in spite of all that, it's very funny... It's very entertaining. Is it as good as Basic Instinct? No. Is it a guilty pleasure? No. Yes. But you can you, you still are drawn to it somehow, watching it again and again, in spite of yourself. Yep, like David Lynch's Dune. I yes. can't help watching it. I mean, even though I know it's a real mess, and it's not at all like the other excellent films that Mr. Lynch has made in his career, I still go back to that because it's just, it's just awesome. It's just so well-designed and so interesting to look at all the time, you know? Um, you know, you said something earlier about the voice actors and what they brought to the Rankin-Bass adaptations, and I'd, I'd like to talk for a minute about that because there's a there's a list of who's who in old Hollywood that have given their voices to Rankin and Bass. Do you guys know about some of the talent behind the voices? Ronnie McDowell is one of my favorite actors, and of course, we all love Brother Theodore as Gollum. Well, there's also oh, there's yeah. also. 
there's also a holy trinity in here. There's Paul Fries, Don Messick, and John Stevenson, who, if you have seen oh, yeah. a cartoon, you've heard their voices. And also Casey oh, Paul Fries is the greatest. Oh, he's amazing. Now, which one of the which one of the hobbits does Casey Kasem play? Uh, Casey Kasem was Mary Brandybuck. That's right. But I didn't. Every time I listen to that, I don't believe it's him. I don't know why. Well, well, you know what? He uses very close to a normal speaking voice. He doesn't do an announcer voice, and he doesn't do like a shabby voice. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's it's not like. Although that being said, once you know it's him, you can't help but thinking, "Well, gee, Gandalf, old buddy, old pal, I can sure go for some of that Hobbit pipe weed right about now." <laughs> 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 That's very funny. There's there's uh, that part where where um where Casey Kasem realizes that Theoden is dead on the battlefield and he swears his vengeance against the darkness of Mordor and it's surprisingly effective. You wouldn't have known in a million years that this was the voice of American Top Forty, that this was Shaggy. You wouldn't have known that. It just as, as a voice actor, that was a really, really good job for Mr. Kaysen to actually go way somewhere else from where no one would know that familiar voice of his and give us the anguish of a hobbit stuck in a very strange land in a very strange place. And it, it captures it very well. In fact, the dialogue around the Battle of the Pelennor Fields is so much more so much closer to original Tolkien than Peter Jackson's. When Miranda Otto goes through the motions of confronting the Witch King and, and fighting him on, in The Return of the King, she says dialogue that isn't at all exactly what the book is, but the cartoon version that Rankin and Bass gave us was exact. To the letter, dot your I, cross your T, that was perfect Tolkien in that moment where she says, for living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. And it's wonderful. It's really, really good. Well, you know, actually, yeah, spe that's... speaking of, of the, the, the battles in, in Pelennor Field and whatnot, that, that was an, another issue I had uh, with, with the film in addition to the padding. It just seems like throughout that battle, uh, something will happen, a character will show up, say their line, do a thing, and then vanish from the film so that we can get to the next confrontation where something will happen, another character will come in out of nowhere, they'll say their line, they'll do their thing, and then they will vanish from the movie. Oh, here he comes with his reinforcements. Oh, here come the Oliphants. Oh, now she fights the Witch King. Look, now there's boats and we're doomed. Oh, wait, our guy's in the boat. We're saved. And it just, it, it seems so, so abrupt. And then, of course, Eowyn... Like, she shows up out of nowhere because you don't know the rest of the story, and also then she disappears. Yeah. You only see her at the end. Yeah, that's, that's the unfortunate, that is definitely the unfortunate drawback of uh, creating something for network television when you've got 90 minutes and, and you've got limited licensing of, of what story you can actually tell. They had, the, you know, Rankin and Bass, uh, they had the weirdest challenges and limitations in front of them. And, you know, the result is, you know, it's really, <laughs> the result is, you know, very much a, a, a mixed bag. What works well about their style of animation and the, the character design and the elements of, of the atmospheric elements of the story. And it, it derails, you know, very often, just like you point out with, you know, characters that do not successively show up that should be there. Um, not enough context for when characters need to be there or when they give their moment and then leave the stage. You're right. You're right on all those counts. It's a, there's a lot of pluses and a lot of minuses uh, to it. But for, for an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old kid who is sitting there in front of the television for the first time, it's, it's more than enough to let their minds just go, wow, this is high fantasy. And I've never seen high fantasy drawn out on this scale and it's i suppose it's an effective tool for getting the younger younger set into tolkien if not that's not true i i used to watch the uh, dungeons and dragons animated series god uh, go on it's not that bad i was always a fan of that dungeons and dragons show i thought that was really cool 
back to Return of the King, I have to say I'm really impressed by, even with the limited time and the padding, how they handle Frodo and Samwise. And Roddy McDowell as Samwise Gamgee yeah. is such a polar opposite of the take. God, actually, ugh, that bucktooth moron. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I really hate that betrayal. In this, he's much more of a hero, and I love the focus on Samwise. And I hate, I hate when people say, oh, Samwise was gay for Frodo. I don't care. He's his best friend, and he's a fucking hero. Yeah, well, I get that. That's something that, that that's always bothered me. People who jump to that reaction if there are two men on screen who have a certain intimacy with each other, they have to be gay. No, they are the best of friends, and that's one of the reasons why they're able to accomplish this this task. They're they're close in a way. They're they're close in a way that you can't be with family and that you can't be with with the lover. It's like this perfect friendship and even even when one of them like starts to go a little bit crazy with desire for the ring they're still able to pull each other back i agree i think the relationship between frodo and sam is the richest and most rewarding part of the rankin bass adaptation i totally agree that the ralph bakshi version of sam is just you know awful 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 with <laughs> capital despicable awful and yeah. uh, I, I'll agree with you uh, totally. The, the the interesting thing about that homoerotic subtext, or what is you know erroneously perceived as a homoerotic bit of behavior, it's like you know I don't I don't remember I don't remember any of those critics you know in, in the foxholes of World War One trying to survive you know bombings and grenades over their heads when all they had was you know the clutch of you know, their brother, their fellow soldier who's in there in the ditch with them trying to survive. And all that all that affection between Frodo and Sam doesn't have anything to do with the sexual equation at all. It never did. It just looks that way to the uninitiated uh, uh, audience member who thinks, oh, Sam just leaned over and kissed Frodo on the forehead. Well, you know, you, you're, you've got two characters there that are scrabbling in the worst of all possible odds, under the worst burdens that you can ever imagine, and you better believe that, you know, the touch and the the hand and the comfort of your fellow man right next to you is going to be the only thing to keep you alive and keep you sane under those conditions. And I, I think that should be at least said for the record, you know. Man. Well, that really could go for for all the forces of good in this movie. They're they're. You know, you you never really see a friendship quite as strong as Frodo and Sam's, but but even then, you know, you know, you see you see uh, Gandalf and, and Pippin, or you know, all the, there 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 is a, a a real connection of of friendship and trust and honor between these people, and as as opposed to the forces of of Sauron, who really all seem to be they're all in it for power, or they're in it because some monstrous force is, is ordering them to. Yes, and they're and they're afraid for their survival if they don't execute their orders. It's totally different well, you know, to them. Th- yes. That's what I loved about the orcs and the you know where there's a whip, there's a way song. It, it, I, in that moment, I do have a lot of sympathy for the orcs. You know, I like that they're they're not they're not presented as fantasy cannon fodder. They're not presented as just these faceless warriors. In that moment, they they seem as real a people as the hobbits. I agree, and I never thought of it quite like that. They. They're, they're sympathetic in that strange little weird song they sing. Well, well, it's I, also it strikes me that you know that you know that, that you know they're probably fighting for Sauron because he's probably the only person that would ever let them fight for 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 him. You know, no human, no human hobbit or elf would probably give him the time of day. So it's just um, sort of desperation that they're with Sauron. Can I throw in a Ben Linus thing uh, on Lost? Um, he's like, because he's the only one that'll have me. And then the chick says, I'll have you. And he joins the forces of good. But that just that small gesture of forgiveness and kindness, he, he's, he's taken away from the dark force of the man in black. Although that being said, could the orcs be any more goddamn stupid in this movie? How the heck? How the heck? Do they not know, when when Frodo and and uh, when when Frodo and and uh, 
Sam are, are in are like wearing the orc armor. How the hell do they pass for orcs? Different skin tone, different body structure, no horns, no tusks, no giant mouths, not, not even really an orcish voice. And, and and yet, you know, like suddenly, oh, you're you're gonna let humans pass? And he's like, oh yes. Not exactly orc orc corporal who I've never seen before. I trust you. It like I, that that scene really stretched credibility in my mind. It really kind of broke the fantasy. It seems and so much I, like a Can I say that I miss the orcs? I love the actual artistry of the uh, design for the orcs. I really miss that as well. I, I do think, you know, the scene with the Frodo and Sam dressed as orcs does stretch credibility, but that's a moment I just always have to suspend my disbelief. And it makes me think, although the Pelennor Field stuff in this Return of the King animated adaptation by Rankin Bass is good, I almost wish they could have cut that out, maybe included more of the Gollum material. I know they didn't have the rights, but if they would have just focused on Frodo and Sam and Gollum and that triumvirate. And you know what? I like, two I, like, I like the fight scenes in this, though. I love the battle scenes. They do look really nice especially in that style. No, they're much better than in The Hobbit when it's like periods and commas fighting each other. <laughs> Two minutes. <laughs> Dude, yeah, this, you know, this, see, this is this is a conversation I've had around Rankin Bass for many years. There are fans who really love it and they're polarized also and really hate it and think to themselves, what the hell are they thinking to have even done that at all? You you will very rarely find any Tolkien fans who have no opinion at all about Rankin Bass. They'll always have something to say. I was shocked to find out that Brian Froud apparently didn't do any concept or, or, or production design on this on this film, which is so strange because especially when you see the orcs marching, they look all almost exactly like Brian Froud creations. I mean, they they have the same yeah, sort of outline do. and facial structure as his goblins. And apparently, as near as I can yeah. tell, the only time Brian Froud did work with Rankin Bass was on the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. I actually see a chain of connection of how Brian Froud, when he was a certain age, was probably inspired by and influenced by what he saw Arthur Rankin doing in, in his designs for The Hobbit. There's a, a heavily, heavy, heavy Japanese animation influence here. Have you guys talked about that in the last podcast about The Hobbit? We did a little bit in The Hobbit. I think in The Return of the King, though, the animation is a good bit better than in The Hobbit. There's certainly more frames mm -hmm. of animation. There's a bit more zip to it, more action going on. As far as the Japanese stuff in it, I've noticed they draw the eyes pretty large. As I believe Thrasher mentioned on the Hobbit episode, Rankin Bass, or at least one of them, was responsible for Thundercats. They both were. Oh, they both were. I see. Well, Thundercats, Silverhawks, and Tiger Sharks. Arthur, Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass would work with a Japanese animation production studio in addition to the work that they did in California. And a lot of the design elements in The Hobbit and The Return of the King are very similar because they had artwork uh, that was created by... They had continuity design by... Sugu Yuki Kubo, and the character designed by American Lester Abrams, and uh, also uh, Sugu Yuki Kubo. This artwork, it reminds me of what you see in the Rankin and Bass adaptation of The Last Unicorn. That's it. Oh, yes, The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Yes, the yeah. Peter S. Beagle adaptation that was also, Rankin and Bass took their entire team from The Hobbit and The Return of the King, and they took all of their production designers and animators in Japan, to go ahead and move forward and do the, the adaptation of The Last Unicorn. It looks very similar, and you'll see so many elements in, in creature design that are the same. I don't think there's anything I enjoy about Return of the King as much as I enjoy the great John Huston, the director of the Maltese Falcon and the African Queen, who worked with Bogey in all those movies. And, and of course, he's the father of Angelica Huston. Just to hear him do that Gandalf and that very very classy and otherworldly kind of feeling he brings to Gandalf's voice. Well, you, you, do, you really? do believe that that is the voice of a several hundred year old wizard, a man who's seen it all and done it all, but still has to stick it through for this one last battle. One of the 
best things about The Hobbit, the, the earlier Rankin-Bass project, was that the dwarves and the long, long dwarven song is actually done in narration by Gandalf, and it, it works exceedingly well. I, I really like it. Another famous Hollywood director, Otto Preminger, he did the voice of the Elven King in The Hobbit. And it's like, where did they get all these dusty old directors who are doing movies in the 40s and 50s? And they got them to come in and do cartoon voices. I think it's really funny. Yeah, I, I can remember John Huston as the voice, as a narrating ape in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, the last of the original Planet of the Apes films in the 70s. Oh yeah, oh, that's right, The Lawgiver. His statue cries at the end, I believe. I want to talk a little bit about, like, Roddy McDowell as Samwise. I love Roddy McDowell. He's an amazing actor. Of course, he was also in Planet of the Apes. But he just has this this, this calming voice that when it talks, it's very... It's kind of meek, but then when like Sam is like, "Oh, I could be Sam Wise the Strong," and it still it has a a almost not a peaceful yes, strength. You know, when I heard him deliver those lines, for me it was I could imagine him on a stage delivering a monologue. It struck me that he was he was performing it as if he were on a stage, and so he was projecting with that kind of force when he goes from meek to mad, imagining what he could be with the power of the ring. And I so like that kind of flourish. Yeah, Roddy McDowell is the ace in the hand of the, of the whole production, really. He's amazing. I mean, he gets to have a confrontation with the invisible watchers at the gate. You know, it's a, a tower of Kirithongal. Not even Sean Astin got a chance to confront those watchers at the gate. And, and Roddy McDowell does a fantastic job of it. It's really, really awesome. The, the continuity of voice actors from the Hobbit cartoon to the Rank Return of the King cartoon is, is helpful overall to the whole production. Orson Bean, who was the voice of Bilbo, manages to do just the right tweak and variation of his voice to make Frodo work and, and make him sound like they're directly related. It, it works, I think, well, rather well. I didn't think about them as, like, I didn't think about the relationship. But yeah, they do They do sound very much alike, but I, I, I hear the tweak. And I think it's a very good main character voice. I really feel the the end of this Return of the King movie, where it goes back to the wraparound story at, at Bill Bo's birthday. Beautifully rendered cake at the, the birthday. I love the way they designed that. <laughs> it reminds me of okay. Snog. <laughs> that damn cake. I see the years haven't dulled your hobbit sense of humor. When Bilbo and Samwise are talking, and Samwise wants to go with Bilbo and, and Gandalf and Elrond to the Grey Havens, and Bilbo says, no, you should stay at home and have a family. Just that voice acting between the two seemed to affect me emotionally more than some of the, uh, shall we say, protracted elements from the Peter Jackson film, where you have mm-hmm. hobbits bouncing on the bed with Gandalf. Well, you know what, there, there's something about the Rankin Bass, there's something about the Hobbit and Return of the King that I think plucks at the heartstrings more than the live action. There's just some amazing parts that, yeah, that make you really feel for the characters, which is, which is great when a cartoon can do that. Yeah, I agree. And I'll give a, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to, you know, deride Glenn Yarborough and that strange warbling voice that he <laughs> used, you know. I, I'm, I'm the first person to, you know, piss on that parade, but I will give him credit. That song at the end where he sings... It's so easy not to try. Plus, uh, that is the really at the end. It's kind of a reprieve with different lyrics. Yep. Yeah, it's a very, it's very effective. It is especially um, when it's combined with original Tolkien verse of "The Road Goes Ever On," and that is the original melody they used in the Hobbit film as well. Now, what would and Glenn Yorbro would have sounded like if he did "When There's a Whip, There's a Way"? They're going to march all day, all day, all day. All day, all day. Gone <laughs> with as a, a whip as a way. <laughs> that, that's so fun. Well, okay, I will say, say this. If, if, I, if I can say at least one terrible thing about the music, which I, I will say overall is very well-crafted music, when they, they keep calling back to that Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom, I I actually really don't like that song. It just seems so inspired, because, of course, what's the next line? Why does he have nine fingers? 
they keep harkening back to it. And the only thing I can really think of is I know why he has nine fingers. <laughs> well, that's the problem with telling the story as a flashback. I wish there had been more Gollum parts. Um, oh, me too. I, me too. I do like, except for the fact that you can see the ring, the part where they're invisible in Mount Doom. Yeah, wait, does the ring not turn invisible? Not anymore, apparently. Yeah, but that is pretty cool, except you don't see the finger in his mouth. You only see the ring. I tried, I watched the part over, <laughs> I kept watching the part, and then he bites it off, but you don't actually see him get the finger in his mouth. You just see, like, the, the ring get pulled. Well, we can assume the finger is still invisible, because it's attached uh, to the ring. Damn, you're right. A, a bit of animated violence that I think was excised from the film. I think ABC Network stepped all over it. And I'll tell you why I think that. Because when it was first broadcast in the year 1980, don't ask how old I am or how I know this, but... <laughs> We're all gentlemen here. The first time it was broadcast... Yeah, yeah. The, the first time it was broadcast, the movie was shown on ABC in its entirety, and it was going to be rebroadcast a year later in the summer. And they did. The second year in 1981, when they showed it again, it had those famous little words on the bottom of the screen edited for television. And mm. I couldn't understand why. I, I don't know if there's anything particularly bloody, certainly not on the scale of Ralph Bakshi bloodletting that you have in his fight sequences at Helm's Deep, but there's, you know, there's the part where Eowyn confronts the Witch King and uh, there's some uh, battlefield uh, uh, stuff. And then, of course, there's Gollum fighting with Frodo at the cracks of doom and biting his finger off. And somewhere along the line, ABC and their network censors must have done something to snip-snip somewhere. I, I don't know exactly where it would have happened because my memory is, you know, not so pure from that long ago. But when you watch the DVD of The Return of the King, there's nothing cut from it. It's all there. And, you know, there's, there's a close-up of Frodo's wounded hand. There's no blood, but you know, of course, that his, his, his ring finger's gone, and what did Gollum do with it? Well, the animation suggests that Gollum pulls the dead finger out of the ring and tosses it aside and starts dancing like a crazy person with his new prize that he's got. You know, the attitudes of, you know, network censors have changed over the years since 1981, that's for sure. But uh, I've always been curious exactly what it was they decided to go back and snip for their rebroadcast in successive years. I never could figure out what it was they decided to cut. Well, is there any blood in this at all? Like, I, you know, I, yeah. Well, Frodo gets pretty badly scratched up, but it's not like really actively bleeding wounds. Yeah, no, no active blood. You know, they uh, they wouldn't go that gruesome. But uh, you know, he's tortured. I mean, there's. Frodo is, what's he doing in the Tower of Kirith on Gaul? He's being tortured. And they have to imply that so they can give yeah. Roddy McDowell a reason to go and save him. And, you know, there's, there were probably certain rules in place about endangering children. Like, you can never, ever show a cartoon that literally shows endangerment of children or extreme peril at that stage. And I think that network rules have changed over the years, but they must have assumed that Frodo and Sam were children, right? And they couldn't be in that much peril because that made the censors go a little, you know, whiffy about it. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. They, they seem to be pretty nicely imperiled throughout throughout much of the film. I mean, I really did fear for them. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think. It's very interesting. I, if I had the chance and I could get my cameras back to do another interview for another Ringer's movie, I would really like to sit down with uh, Arthur Rankin, Jr., and, and Jules Bass. If they'd be agreeable to it, I would love to talk to them and get some of their stories. That would be a heck of an accomplishment. I want to have a moment of silence. Corey Haim died today of a drug No, overdose. he didn't. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. Yes. <gasps> uh, uh, yes, yes. Age 39, I believe. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think some so of his... So he's Feldman, right? He, yeah, I've, I've seen Corey Feldman in concert once, actually, but um, that's beside the point. This is it poetry in motion? Uh... No, I mean, Corey Feldman's had three albums, but other than his cover of Stand By Me, I don't think there was any standouts. But, I mean, with Corey Haim, he had a lot of problems as he made that transition as child or teen actors do into adulthood. 
Uh, the most recent thing I can think of seeing him in, he w he had a small part in Crank 2, starring Jason Statham and Bai Lane. And Corey Haim and Corey Feldman had, I think, a two-season reality show on A&E or AMC, one of those of all places. Oh, and actually, as I recall, both Corey Haim and Corey Feldman had guest spots on a Big Wolf on campus. I think playing themselves, but also as themselves as vampires, if I remember correctly. Cliff, do you have anything to say about Corey Haim? I think it's, I think it's ridiculous. Uh, after after Heath Ledger went the way that he went, and and mm. Corey today, and, and Brittany Murphy, and Brittany, of course. Um, oh God, that hurt, doing, I, that hurt my soul. Yeah, and Brittany was doing some great voiceover work herself. Um, I think it is really insane that the, the situation with prescription drugs has gotten where it's gotten and there isn't some kind of regulation or some kind of change in the way these drugs are put in the hands of people. It's just amazing to me. Right, I'm thinking well, maybe with have, the ongoing litigation with uh, the Michael Jackson case, oh, that yeah. if, if they prosecute his uh, doctor or personal anesthesiologist or whatever his title was, maybe doctors or the pharmacies might be held more accountable or they can put more stuff behind the counter and make it trickier to get renewals on him so quickly. Um, but let's let's stop talking about celebrities. Yes. Um, I need nothing more than a rich hobbit pipe. I want to... Can we talk a little bit about Aragon? Yes, that's, I, I can't believe we didn't even talk about that. Sure, go on. Aragon, in this movie, he's kind of not ineffectual, but he... Because you don't have that whole fellowship thing, it seems there's no relationship between any of the characters, especially Aragorn. It's like he doesn't even know that Frodo and Sam are on this uh, trip. He's not doing anything to give them more time. It doesn't seem like he's actively trying to help distract from Sam and Frodo getting them out of Doom. Totally. The, the use of Aragorn in this movie is a waste of time. I mean, the, the movie title should be changed because there is no return of the king that anybody cares about. Aragorn has nothing to do, nobody to do it to, and no reason to even be in the story with the way they handle the character. We, yeah. I almost felt like I was watching two movies. Like, the, the stuff in the fields and the stuff at Mordor it just seemed so separated in the film itself that it was it was almost as if two films had two fantasy films had been edited together and then get loosely tied up with the flashback scenes of the birthday party. I wonder if Warner Brothers Home Video is ever going to put out a Blu-ray version of these animated movies. You know, I don't know. I, I know coming up fairly soon they're doing a Blu-ray and DVD re-release of the Bakshi Lord of the Rings as a deluxe edition that was some sort of documentary, but I'm not sure if it's going to be any big uh, in-depth thing, or it might be some vintage piece from the 80s or 70s. Yeah, so that, that could possibly be worth checking into. This, this isn't a criticism of, of, of Return of the King itself. It's very peripheral, but the, the artwork on the case for the, the DVD release of Return of the King, it looks like from a completely different movie. Now, I <laughs> it is awful. Well, well, I can understand because like, the Disney animated films did kind of set a precedent that you do kind of an airbrushed version of the character designs that really smooth out a lot of the lines for, for the video covers. And I can understand and accept that. But, but for, first and foremost, that's not Frodo and Sam on the cover. That's the Lucky Charms leprechaun on a horse <laughs> riding with what appears to be George Costanza. <laughs> Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, two, exactly. Two floors. Two dwarves who don't appear in the film, and in the background, two castles that don't appear in the film. And in the background is Smog, the dragon, or at least a dragon. And a dragon. Yes. A dragon that doesn't yeah. belong there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it, it's as if, it's as if like, they, they, they did not let the artist watch the movie. They just kind of told them, put, put two midgets on a horse. <laughs> Fancy. I mean, even the exactly. horse, like, the Rankin-Bass horses are these slender, graceful, yet powerful beasts. This looks like an underfed pony. <laughs> it's a dwarf Clydesdale. <laughs> and I, I thought Thorin died in The Hobbit. Why does he show up here on this cover? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> assuming that's even him. Oh, I was just going to say that there's a, there's a famous confrontation between Gandalf the White and the Witch King. When the Witch King appears 
at the gates of uh, Minas Tirith. Yes. And in the Peter Jackson adaptation, this confrontation does not happen at all. There's a confrontation in the cartoon, in the Rankin-Bass cartoon, that works and succeeds were the, in the Peter Jackson film that was not even attempted. But the Witch King is heard in dialogue saying in the live-action film, as for the wizard, I will break him. Remember when he says that? Yes. yes. And, and But then that's like a, like a teaser for a confrontation that is going to happen, but it never happened, mm. actually. It never happened. Was anything shot? In the... It, it might have been filmed, and then they decided they couldn't make it work out. Maybe. Well, actually, speaking speaking of, of the Witch King and, and then the, the 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 Ring Race in general, the the Ring Race I I felt like that's it's they they just seemed like such a such a a, a, a mixed bag. In back, she's Lord of the Ring. I love I love his ring rates. They have great motion, great personality, a creepy design. Even when you see their form as like the old kings, they're still nice and creepy. I was really just uh, uh, I was really uh, let down by the ring rates designs in Return of the King. They're they're just skeletons. They're just effectively skeletons on flying horses. They kind of look actually yeah. like the wood elves um, from The Hobbit. They, they just, just they just yeah. The design seems so uninspired. The designs aren't worthy of, of what the, the the ring rates are. Now, that being said, I actually like the Witch King. I just like the idea of these two blazing eyes staring out of a head that isn't there. That you know, was... he first takes off the hood. He's kind of like the dread Dormammu with the fire. But then after that, you know, he's just this weird, weird spirit inhabiting the suit. Uh, which I actually thought was very effective. I even kind of liked the voice, as high-pitched as it was. Although one thing that, that did kind of bother me is the first time you see the Witch King, he's flying on one of the flying horses that, that the other Nazgul are riding, but then later he's then riding that dragon, So that, that dragon creature. So was he saving that for later? The ring rates that are visible, so strangely visible to the naked eye when they never should be, that didn't work. But then he's the head god, Asgul. All of a sudden, he's appropriately invisible, except for a floating crown. And, and, and I like that Doctor Strange reference. Thank you for saying that, by the way. <laughs> floating red eyes. It is cool. I can't emphasize enough, really, that the tools of the animator and their ability as an artist to create abstractions or you know visual elements that could never be captured by a camera in the physical world. It gives them a great advantage to tell the stories and, and to let abstractions go into a whole different type of direction in storytelling. It does not really work more than half the time in this version of Return of the King, but when it does work, it works very, very well. Let's illustrate that with Gandalf getting this monologue that he has, contemplating death on the battlefield, Oh. and the way the darkness is coming out of the east. And he has this dialogue, which was never written by Professor Tolkien, but it sounds a lot like Tolkien. And he says, Who causes the minutes to fall dead, adding up to no passing hour, bringing no change from day to night, as the unseen sun fails to filter into the ever-present darkness? Really chilly and creaky and eerie, and it, it succeeds because the animators aren't really showing us literal things anymore. They go off and to show us red clouds of molten ash and volcanic fumes and in the middle of it all, a weird eyeball, a really ugly eyeball filled with red capillaries and it's floating in the smoke and looking all the world like it's going to reach out and eat us. And for a young kid, you know, kids who are in between 8 and 12 years old who are watching this cartoon, that type of abstraction of, of what Sauron is, what the Dark Lord is all about, and we can't really tell by looking, they tell us and show us at the same time, and it's probably one of the finest points of the Rankin-Bass effort, I think. And, uh, of course, I give the lion's share of the credit to John Huston, really. Oh, I, I think that that eye for Sauron is wonderfully effective. I absolutely love that, and, and I also feel it was on screen the exact right amount of time. I was always fascinated with it. I never got bored with it. I, I loved that eye. 
I have to say, I yeah. wish I could have cool. seen this Return of the King animated when I was a child. When I was a child, I did see The Hobbit several times. Yeah. It had a book of The Hobbit with illustrations where you'd play an audio cassette and it would narrate the story and do a sound effect when you turn the page. But I didn't even realize this Return of the King existed until they came out with it on DVD in 2003 or so, around the time the of the set. films. Are you talking about the set, Matt? They had a set, but they also came out with the DVD individually, but they did do a, a box set of The Hobbit. They did, yeah. The Bakshi I have the, VHS, I have the VHS set. I think I got it in 2001, because my mother thought it would make a very good... I think it was Christmas present. It's funny, though. They did come out in 2001, that Warner Brothers Family Entertainment Edition, and it was the first time that these movies had been on DVD, and, you know, coincidentally, it's very strange, but... The date of release, the street date, when they hit the retail shelves, was actually September 11th, 2001. Oh, 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 I think I recall that. Oof. Yes. Now that signifies nothing on its own, but it is it is a coincidental fact. This movie brings back like so many memories of childhood, and and seeing it today. Here's a question: Do you think some of the people that you talked about or talked to about these films? Did you find that a lot of people had seen them as kids? Yes, everybody I know has seen them as kids. And, you know, it's very rare that I talk to someone who's only seen it recently. And, you know, to have seen the Return of the King cartoon version way after the Peter Jackson trilogy, I can't imagine how you would absorb it or what what you'd even think of it after seeing something else like that. Right. The the, the Rankin-Bass cartoons are are always going to benefit greatly from nostalgia and, and the fact that someone in their late 30s or early 40s will look back and say, oh, I certainly remember that. That's a sweet, sweet memory. That, that really does color it a lot. One part from the Return of the King book that I wish would have been either in this or in the uh, Peter Jackson adaptation is the part at the end when the hobbits return to the Shire and find it a total slave-run shithole because uh, Sarah Mountain... Yeah and uh, Grimton have worked the way back there and say, well, how do you think we feel about it? Well, it's not slave-run. Well, slave oh, sorry. Yeah, with the Hobbit slaves and stuff. But, I mean, it's such an interesting, important sequence of how central Hobbiton is to the whole series that I wish I would see that done in some way, and perhaps one day it will be. You know what? We should have another conversation someday about that, the scouring of Shire and, and those elements of Saruman and Wormtongue, how those mm-hmm. characters actually show up in the Shire, and, you know, ultimately meet their demise. It's, it's always fascinating to me because you're right. That was, that was more important to the narrative than anything to Tolkien was to actually give the impression that the, the worldwide threat was not so far away from the hobbits as they thought it would, and they were not so insulated as they thought they were. And it's very powerful stuff. So we've talked a lot about this animated right. Return of the King. In conclusion... What are some final thoughts on it, and would you recommend someone watch this? Well, I, my final thoughts are, it's not overall great, but some of the elements are terribly close to Tolkien and worth looking at just to see some of the artwork. I would take The Return of the King off the shelf if I were trying to introduce children to the books and let them have some visual appetizer before sitting down to actually read it to them or share the books with them. That, that would be my approach. I liked it a whole lot more having seen it now than when I saw it as a kid and I didn't know really what to make of it. Because I, uh-huh. I, kept, you know, I, I kept thinking, is there a part that I'm missing? And now that as an adult I've seen the... still haven't read all the books, but I've at least seen other adaptations and I kind of understand the story. It makes a, a lot more sense to me. But then at the same time, because the thing's omitted... It also loses some sense. Thrasher? I really feel if you really want to understand Tolkien on film, I think you do need to see this movie. It's, it's a perfect example of, of the challenges that are going to be faced when you're adapting a work of Tolkien to the screen, whether it's the TV screen or the movie screen. I absolutely love the animation. If you're interested in the craft of animation, you should definitely watch it because there is a a feast for the eyes in that regard. Just for the performances and and, and out of respect for the wonderful actors, voice and otherwise in this film, it's very much worth seeing if you're a devotee about performance. On the whole, as a movie, though, I, I probably wouldn't recommend it 
at least not to Tolkien fans. I could actually imagine someone who's never read Tolkien actually watching this and really kind of, you know, getting into it. I, I think if you have been exposed to Tolkien beforehand, you are going to bring a lot of predispositions to the film that you probably shouldn't have. I mean, I first saw right. this when I was about seven or eight, I believe. But admittedly, I think I only saw the last half hour. The only scenes I remember are around when Gollum shows up. And you know, I saw everything from that point on. And it wasn't until many years later that I got to see the work as a whole. But I think it is best going in with, without much prior experience with Tolkien. Yeah, I would say I enjoyed this at Return of the King a bit more than I expected. This is the first time I've seen it in its entirety. I had rented it a while ago and the DVD was scratched, so it didn't get so far. But this time around I bought it and watched the whole thing. And I enjoyed it. I really wonder what it would be like watching, doing a double feature, watching The Hobbit animated back-to-back with this animated Return of the King. And if that would work or just confuse you even more, I'm not even sure. But I would obviously say having some familiarity of Tolkien, whether seeing the Peter Jackson trilogy or reading the books, is helpful before seeing this. I'm not sure if it would make a whole lot of sense otherwise. I also would recommend, if someone is a fan of The Lord of the Rings, an excellent thing to look into is a radio play done by the BBC in the early 80s, which is several hours long, but a pretty faithful adaptation of the Tolkien text. Very excellent, and uses a few voices from the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings. Hey, Matt, is that in print, or where could you find a copy of that, of the BBC version? Actually, the BBC online store might very well carry it. Ooh, they carry a yeah, lot of their radio shows on disc. Yes, I would look there first, absolutely. But uh, you're going to mention something about the radio play series, Cliff? Well, well, you just mentioned the connection between Bakshi and the BBC, and I thought immediately of John Hurt. You know, John Hurt, who was the Elephant Man, and you know, and in Disney's uh, Black Cauldron, he was the Horned King, and mm. and John Hurt was opposite Jodie Foster in Contact, and obviously we we've seen him in V for Vendetta and a million, million other things. Everybody loved John Hurt, but you know that was him as the voice of Aragorn. Yeah, see, no, I, I love that. I love stopping and realizing, wait a minute, that's Anthony Daniels, that's C-3PO, <laughs> doing Legolas now. <laughs> I, I, I love discovering little fun bits like that. I just love that. Oh, actually, I will say, I just did a check. The BBC dramatization of The Lord of the Rings is available. Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com. Interestingly enough, it's the abridged version, and it's still about 13 discs. And that's abridged, wow. really? Abridged. With 13 discs? Huh. Yes, 13 discs, and according to the note notes, this is an abridged version. So I'm not entirely sure what they cut out, whether it snips here or there, whether they had to gut part of it to, just to get it on that, uh, on that size. Well, when, when I'm stuck in Los Angeles traffic, nothing, nothing makes me happier than having a really good audiobook on my player. Or a really good podcast like this one. Yes, or an excellent podcast. Wow, Will. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> it's very Howard Stern of you to plug so much. Okay. You guys are really awesome, and I want to acknowledge you, all of you, and thank you very much for this for this chance to be part of your project today. It's really cool. Oh, no problem. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Yes. thanks very much for your time, Cliff. It's really cool to have an expert's, like, perspective. Thank you, man. I, I, I appreciate you guys, you know, allowing me the chance to, you know, you know talk for a while and... and and God knows, I, I can't do enough of that. Be well, and may the road rise to meet your feet. See, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. I'm getting all green and Irish on you now. <laughs> <laughs> I already am. Ew, don't get your Irish on me. Ew. <laughs> don't mock my people, Jason. <laughs> it's awesome. All right, thanks, guys. I'm going to jet. All right. Bye. Take care. So what do you want to do as the next series of movies, fellas? I won't be able to record well, well, first, for a little first, bit. First, let me say, if we really want to be fair and complete and round off the non-Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings adaptation, we really should do the Lord of the Rings porno. We should do, uh, we should do, uh, we should do Lord of the G-Strings, Female Ship of the Strings, starring Misty Monday as the Throbbit Bildo Sagans. No, because I that, watched that. I watched that night. I that's just awful. It, I really it it hurt my spine. It actually made me limp. The acting. That'd be for a different kind of show. I think we're going for a family audience with their explicit fucking language. No, I think this animated this loose animated trilogy has been fun. A bit something different, but best. you will had a suggestion of doing 
the Reanimator trilogy? Yes, over a series the of horror episodes? movies. Yes. Yeah, I think that'd yeah, be. So, but but yeah, I had something about Reanimator. And of course, I've read the story. The movies are, of course, Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, and Beyond Reanimator. And we could also yeah. talk about the sequel, the fine, the fourth movie that never happened and never will. <laughs> a House of Reanimator. I think that sounds like a great idea. I um, I'll need to read that story again. Wait, I have. Why? Why never made? Why? Huh? Well, I, I want to save most of it for the podcast. Oh God! I'm sorry. Had, I keep forgetting he's recording. They had written. Pardon. I keep forgetting he hasn't stopped recording. I, I want to save that for after we do the third movie because it's, yeah. an, it's an interesting story about the fourth one they tried to make and why we're never going to see it. So in conclusion, be sure to check out the SequelCast website at www.sequelcast.com. You can send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com or you can check out our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash sequelcast. So coming up in the SequelCast, you can look forward to episodes... Yeah. Dealing with the Reanimator trilogy, based on a H.P. Lovecraft story called Herbert West. It, it wasn't a single story. Ah, okay. So it's almost a novella, almost. In like yeah. So, so each each one is self-contained, but they they kind of link into one big arc about the sort of the life and times of Herbert West and his assistant. So this is Uncle Milkshake with Thrasher and Jersey Jason. So what does the Minstrel of Gondor have to say closing out the sequel cast episode and the animated Rankin-Bass adaptation of Return of the King? It's so easy not to try to make bad sequels. That's that's fine.